Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, my guest is John Marks. He's written a new book entitled Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, Race, Status, and Identity in the Urban Americas. And John is associated with the American Association for State and Local History. And I'll just add, I know the folks he worked with at Rice University to get his PhD, including my longtime friends, Ed Cox and John Bowles. So, John, with that introduction, welcome to the journal. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. All right. Before we get into your your book, our listeners like to know a little bit about our guests. So tell us who you are in terms of who are your folks, where did you come from? I've already spilled the fact that you went to Rice, but you can take it up before that. Sure. So I, I grew up in, in central New Jersey and uh, had some, some incredible history teachers, and one in particular when, when I was in high school, uh, public high school, that really inspired my, uh, my interest in history and my love of history. Uh, and then I went to, when I went to college, I decided it was time to get out of New Jersey, uh, and I went to Lynchburg College, now the University of Lynchburg uh, in, in Central Virginia. Um, and that was where I really started to engage with Southern history, uh, with African-American history, and really learn the craft of, of being a historian. Um, so I worked with some, some great professors there, um, in particular, uh, Kurt Von Dack, who's now at the University of Virginia. Um, and then once I got, uh, when I was in a junior in college, I studied abroad in Latin America. I spent about six months in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, and that helped me get a get a Spanish major. Um, and so I graduated uh, from Lynchburg with a history major and a Spanish major and a museum studies minor. Uh, and then I decided I wanted to continue pursuing history um, and uh, to continue pursuing Southern and African-American history in particular. Uh, and so I went was fortunate to receive a fellowship to attend graduate school at Rice University down in Houston, Texas. Um, and as you mentioned, got a chance to work with some, some really incredible advisors and professors, including uh, Dr. Bowles and Dr. Cox and Jim Sidberry and uh, Kayla McDaniel and, and many others. And uh, got a chance to gain some editorial experience at the Journal of Southern History there, um, and also to spend some additional time living and researching in Latin America to try to kind of bring it all together. And then when I when I finished graduate school, I, I ended up in in the public history field, working with museums and historic sites. Okay, so what do you do there with the AA, the American Association for State and Local History? Yeah, so my role is uh, is sort of a little bit of everything. So I'm the senior manager for strategic initiatives and I'm the director of our public history research lab. Uh, so primarily my work focuses on, on two big areas. Uh, the first is research about public history institutions and about the role of history in American life. Uh, so we are doing work uh, investigating how public audiences understand history and how to help uh, professional historians and museum professionals better communicate what history is and why it matters. Uh, we're doing research about uh, how many public history institutions there are in the country, how many museums and historic sites. Uh, we're doing uh, lots of research about how the public engages with those kinds of institutions. Uh, and then I'm also helping us organize fieldwide planning among museums and historic sites for the nation's 250th anniversary in 2026. Uh, so we've been engaged in that work uh, since about 2016, so 10 years out from the anniversary, um, and it has really started to, to pick up steam over the last six months or so. And this summer, we'll, we'll kind of hit the five-year mark and expect things to explode with, with activity and planning and programming as, uh, as the public and as museums and historic sites prepare for the semi-quincentennial anniversary of the United States. Yes, with that big anniversary coming up, you're going to have your hands full. I think every every museum in the country, from Colonial Williamsburg to the South Carolina Historical Society to the Historic Columbia Foundation, everybody's looking towards that anniversary. Yeah, absolutely. And, and South Carolina was among the first states to establish a a, a state-level commission to kind of organize and direct state planning for the 250th anniversary. And so they're in a, uh, in a small group that's, uh, that's out ahead of the game here at the, at the five-year mark. All right. Well, let's, let's move now to your book, the title, Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, Race, Status, and Identity in the Urban Americas. And for our listeners, Americas is plural. 
in the Americas. So you take it from there. How you decided to come up with this particular topic and what you're exploring? Sure. So Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery is a book about people of African descent in the Americas who gained their freedom prior to the end of slavery. Uh, so I'm really interested in comparisons of lived experience for African descended people in the urban Americas in particular. So in the cities of North America, the Caribbean and South America. And to tell that pretty big story, I focus specifically on experiences of people in Charleston, South Carolina and in Cartagena, Colombia, which is situated on the Caribbean coast there, uh, sort of on the on the northern coast of South America. Uh, so the, most of the book focuses on the time sort of between the American Revolution and the abolition of slavery in the United States in 1865. Um, and most of the book is uh, situated mostly between about 1780 and in 18 and 1840. And so like, this is my first book. And so like most first history books, it grew out of work that I started in graduate school. And while I was in graduate school, I started, uh, you know, I came in thinking I was going to focus primarily on U.S. history and African-American history. But as I started reading a little bit more about the history of race and slavery in Latin America, drawing on, the, on my Spanish skills, uh, I saw all these parallels with the U.S. experience that weren't really being explored in the literature. Uh, primarily, comparative studies between the United States and places in South America focused on uh, on laws and focused on policies, focused on more abstract attitudes. And I really wanted to write more of a, a ground up uh, a ground up study that focused on these parallels and differences in the lived experiences of free people of color in the early Americas and, and to see what that would tell us about about race, about slavery, and about freedom in the 18th and 19th century Atlantic world. So ultimately, what I found is that in, in Charleston and in Cartagena, and, and really throughout the urban Americas, free people of color just demonstrated this really remarkable resilience and creativity and ingenuity in their efforts to improve their individual lives, to provide stability for their families, uh, and, and to create opportunities for their children. Well. With Charleston, you've got really two centuries to, to work with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my, my, I started focusing on Charleston pretty quickly. Um, as, as you're suggesting, you know, there, there aren't many cities that can compare to Charleston in terms of the early development of these urban dynamics um, and the sort of stability over time that allows me to, to tell this longer story. Um, and then so the challenge for me was figuring out what the appropriate point of comparison was for that city. Um, and uh, ultimately, I, I decided on, uh, on, on Cartagena as a sort of uh, a, a counterpoint to Charleston in South America. They are both port cities and they are both uh, really important sites of urban trade for their respective continents, Charleston for North America and Cartagena for South America. Uh, but there were a lot of other similarities that once I started looking into this, uh, that, that I think made them appealing and appropriate as sites for an extended comparison. Uh, so, for example, both cities during the 18th and 19th centuries were home to black majorities. Um, they were both intimately connected to the wider Caribbean world and to the wider Atlantic world, but they were situated upon uh, their, their respective continents and, and really serving those kind of mainland communities. Um, and, and both cities were principal sites for the disembarkation of enslaved Africans through the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and so those, those were some of the, the things that jumped out at me as being, uh, being criteria that I could use to compare the two places, but there's also a lot of differences between them. So for example, in, in Charleston, the majority of the population was enslaved people with a very small population of free people of color. Um, Charleston is very much a, a slave society during the period that I'm studying it, and it's serving a, a plantation zone in the surrounding area. And its most active years of slave trading were in the 18th and, and very early 19th centuries. Uh, whereas for Cartagena, the majority of the population during this time were free people of color. And then there was a small population still during the 19th century of enslaved Africans and African descended people. And Cartagena is not a slave society in the same way that Charleston was. Um, it's really functioning more as a, as a commercial entrepot for the wider uh, Spanish American empire. 
Um, and slave trading to, to Cartagena really ends by uh, by the end of the 17th century. So it's a, a active in the slave trade in a much earlier period than, than for Charleston. But that kind of combination of similarities and differences really, I thought, would help me draw out how race and slavery and ideas about freedom are developing throughout the Americas during the 18th and 19th centuries. All right. Well, let's let's just start off with the title of your your first chapter, The Path to Freedom. How could an enslaved person get freedom in South Carolina? Uh, I don't want you to get too much into the comparison with Cartagena because we've only got an hour to talk about this wonderful book. So <laughs> let's let's deal mostly with South Carolina if we could. Sure. The, in terms of the paths to freedom, there are, there are a couple of different avenues that enslaved people used. One of the ways that, uh, that they did it was through self-purchase. Because of the exigencies of urban life, enslaved people in Charleston were able to, uh, to, to gain privileges that their rural counterparts were not. Um, and so often this included hiring out their own time. Um, using their their skills in things like carpentry and tailoring and barbering uh, to to earn money, at some of which they had to return to their enslaver, but some of which they were able to keep for themselves. Um, and over time, through thrift and, and hard work, uh, a small number of enslaved people were able to actually purchase their own freedom from their enslavers. Um, others are able to purchase their family members, sometimes after they had purchased their own freedom. And in some sort of heartbreaking cases, you see enslaved people purchasing the freedom of a child or purchasing the freedom of their spouse prior to purchasing freedom for themselves. Um, and then finally, through, especially during the era of the American Revolution, you have private manumission happening, uh, you know, not, not frequently, but um, you know, it's one of the more common ways that enslaved people were, were gaining their freedom. So whether it was for religious consideration, uh, for uh, political reasons, as people kind of got swept up in the revolutionary fervor and these ideas about, about liberty, um, and sometimes for personal reasons, just uh, because of a, you know, a a romantic relationship or sexual relationship uh, because of a sort of close bond that had developed over time. You have a small number of enslavers who are uh, are, are emancipating their enslaved people, uh, sometimes while the enslaver is alive, sometimes in the enslaver's will. And that is something that's happening through, you know, particularly during the era of, of the American Revolution. But in Charleston, it gets increasingly difficult as the 19th century wears on for enslaved people to go from slavery to freedom. Um, so new in, in, new restrictions on emancipation of enslaved people get introduced in 1800, in 1820, uh, in the 1840s, um, as the free black population in Charleston and in South Carolina continues to grow. So by the 1840s, it's just about all but impossible for enslaved people to legally obtain their freedom and stay in and stay in South Carolina. John, this is an interesting development. Of course, it really starts with the Negro Act of, of 1740 after the Stono Rebellion, mm -hmm. uh, because nothing was more important to, certainly in English law, than private property. And yet, beginning with the slave code, that infamous Negro Act of 1740, government begins to tell South Carolinians, what they can and cannot do with their personal property. And these successive acts that you've mentioned in 1800 and 1820 and so forth are further restrictions on what a slaver can do with something he owns, an enslaved person. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to see as well, you know, when these laws are, are introduced, often at you know, at moments of crisis, right? Um, you know, in 1740, just after the Stono Rebellion, in 1800 and 1820, as whites who kind of came of age in the revolutionary era are increasingly manumitting enslaved people, the free black population grows, and then the the South Carolina legislature is, is sort of treating that as as a problem that that needs to get solved. Uh, but you're, there's also moments in there where there might be a law on the books, but it's not something that's being enforced in practice. And so Prior to 1800, there were some restrictions on, you know, on how you could manumit enslaved people, um, what what had to happen with those enslaved people after they gained their freedom, but they're not always observed um, or, or acted upon in, in practical terms. Um, well, but after 1800, as the free black population grows, it becomes it does become increasingly difficult to free slaves. The laws that are on the books are increasingly enforced in in Charleston, and so you have this sort of fundamental 
distrust of of black freedom in in the early 19th century among white South Carolinians, among among white Charlestonians. Um, There's this belief that the presence of free black people represented a threat to the social order of of the state and of the region, that the presence of free people of color, the presence of black freedom would undermine the stability of the slave system. And as slavery grows in the 18th and 19th century, uh, that becomes becomes too much to bear for uh, for the planter class, uh, for white authorities in the state and in Charleston in particular. All of that is absolutely true. But as you mentioned, laws were not always enforced. And that all you have to do is look at the grand jury presentments be- beginning after the the Negro Code of uh, 1740, complaint after complaint that the laws are not being enforced. And even if you have laws, one of the ironies, the newspapers of Charleston discussed issues that would cause tension. We'll get get into the Haitian Revolution a little bit later on. But you talk about the information age today where everything is out there. Everything was out there in the 18th century in the means of communication uh, that you can think of. So no matter how much those who held property or the white minority felt about keeping folks in line, that stance was being undermined every time the Charleston newspaper came out, every time a ship came to Charleston from the Caribbean. Absolutely. the the I, I continue to find it kind of incredible how well-informed enslaved people are in Charleston. People who couldn't read, maybe who couldn't read the newspaper themselves, how informed they were about circumstances in Charleston, in the South, uh, and in the Atlantic world more broadly. Um, The sort of communications networks uh, that that developed in Black communities during the 18th and 19th century uh, really are remarkable. And, you know, and this is the, you know, the fundamental challenge of trying to you know, codify and legislate around slavery is that you can treat human beings as property under the law, um, but they are going to act in in ways that are contrary to that and will continually refuse to be treated as property uh, in, in practice. And so some of the, one of the more interesting things that you see happening with manumission in particular is after 1800, when these uh, new manumission restrictions get passed down, that you can't just uh, file a deed of manumission with the courthouse, you have to uh, present it in front of a legal panel uh, to, in order to get approval for your manumission. You have enslaved people who are working with uh, sympathetic whites to conduct sales and trust. And so they would essentially be sold to someone else and held in a trust where they were nominally still held in slavery. But the restrictions on that trust meant that they couldn't be resold, they couldn't be brought out of the state. Um, and so it sort of uh, undermined some of the dangers of enslaved status in terms of family separation and violent treatment and things like that. And then as enslaved people do that throughout the first two decades of the 19th century, in 1820, uh, the legislature says, okay, you can't do sales and trust that are just nominally holding people in slavery anymore. Um, and so enslaved people are continuing to find ways around these restrictions um, and their uh, their efforts to, to gain freedom and to find pathways out of slavery for themselves and for their children, and for their families are really remarkable. John, we mentioned the newspapers and, and I, th- I think I said that what appeared in the press undermined the position to a certain extent that the white power structure was was trying to enforce, not because they were advocating abolition, but because they were continually reporting slave revolts in the Caribbean. They were reporting problems in Richmond. What you had is an underground network, basically. A ship comes in and says, have you heard what, what was happening in Havana, Cuba? What happened here? What happened there? The men who were on the docks picked up from the crew. Many of the crew were either free blacks from somewhere else or they were enslaved, but the word passed. The newspapers were constantly reporting problems with slaves. Even the grand jury presentments that I've mentioned, they're talking about they are causing problems. So unintentionally, the information, you might ban abolitionist literature from South Carolina, but if you discuss the problems in the press quite openly, and even the laws that are being passed, we're passing these laws because Mm -hmm. there's a problem. So the white power structure continued to be uneasy. In 1820, when they passed that that second set of laws that you talked about, manumission, that came about during the discussion 
of the admission of Missouri to the Union as a slave state. It also was the year when the census was taken that South Carolina once again had a black majority from 1790 to 1820. It had a white majority population. So folks in control of a slave society, oops, the federal government is questioning slavery in the territories. So there, there are outside forces that are generating actions in South Carolina. The historian Julius Scott calls it the the common wind that these uh, enslaved people and free people of color in port cities in the in the Atlantic world and in the Americas are engaging. Um, and and you really do see it with uh, with respect to developments about slavery elsewhere in in the United States, uh, debates in Congress about the future of slavery and the slave trade, uh, the the actions of enslaved people in the Caribbean slave revolts in particular. Um, and you know whites in in South Carolina and, and newspaper publishers I, I can't. I can never quite get my head around it. Um, what they what they thought was happening, um, or whether it was um, you know just sort of willful disbelief on on their part. But enslaved people understood what was being published in the newspapers, and they learned about it oftentimes before it came out in the newspapers and certainly would, would learn about it after. Uh, the, the crews of most of these ships that are coming in from the Caribbean um, and that are coming in every day into, into, into Charleston um, are being, being worked by people of African descent, whether free or enslaved. Um, on the other side, the people in Charleston who are working at the docks and wharves are also people of African descent, primarily enslaved people, but also free people of color. Um, you know, there's a, a small population who are, who are literate, who can help pass news from newspapers out to the wider, uh, the wider black community in the, in the low country. Um, news is being passed from people working on ships who had just been in Brazil or just been in Colombia or just been in San Domingue to people living in Charleston. And so they might not themselves have been traveling out in the Atlantic world, but through these uh, communication networks, they were able to understand developments that were happening you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles away. And you really see how this is operative during the era of the Haitian Revolution. Yeah. John, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with historian John Marks about his new book, Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery. One of the incidents, John, that of course was communicated very vividly was the Haitian Revolution at the end of the 18th century. And that had a big impact, not just in terms of news and how the threat might be to South Carolina, but also in terms of immigration of folks literally coming to South Carolina from Haiti. So why don't we move on to the impact of of Haiti on the issue of free persons of color? Sure. So the the Haitian Revolution is one of the most monumental events in in world history period and certainly in the history of the Atlantic world uh, you know after the introduction of enslaved people um, and it's something that reverberates throughout the Atlantic world uh, and really across the globe during the 1790s and that was particularly true in urban centers in the Americas, places like Charleston, like Cartagena, and elsewhere, where word could spread particularly quickly because of ongoing commercial exchanges uh, and the arrival of, of ships, that word could really spread fast among both Black people and white people. Uh, and it had a really remarkably different impact on, on those two groups. So for their part, whites in places like Charleston were ridden with anxiety and with fear that local black populations would begin engaging these ideas that were being spread through Haiti about liberty and about equality um, and about the end of slavery, the use of, of revolution to advance those ends fears about, about racial violence were really prevalent um, and talked about frequently among the white population. Uh, and then among free people of color and enslaved people, they really relished the opportunity to learn about this news from abroad uh, and to use it to challenge racial oppression and white authority closer to home. And it's really remarkable when you look at Charleston newspapers during this era, how often they are talking and writing about the Haitian Revolution. They're not acting like they want this to remain a secret from the population of Charleston and certainly don't seem to be acknowledging that 
free people of color and enslaved people are learning about what's being published in the newspaper. Um, so they are publishing direct reports from San Domingue about the racial violence that is happening there, about the efforts to end slavery, about their efforts to achieve equality among blacks and whites. And, and that's really, it was just really kind of shocking and, and remarkable to me as I was doing my research. Um, but you also see uh, sort of hints at other ways that enslaved people and free people of color could learn about the Haitian Revolution. So there, throughout the 1790s, while the, the Haitian Revolution is ongoing, you have reports of ships that are coming into Charleston with goods from Saint-Domingue. So the, the commercial interactions did not end, at least not right away during that era. And you, so you still had ships coming from San Domingue, and that meant you had ship crews that were people of African descent that had learned firsthand what was happening in San Domingue uh, in terms of the, the racial violence that was happening there. And then you also have whites from San Domingue who are fleeing the island and uh, attempting to bring their enslaved people with them. And these white refugees go a lot of places in the Atlantic world. They go to Havana, Cuba, they go to Philadelphia, but a lot of them end up in Charleston. And so throughout the 1790s, you see two kinds of advertisements in the newspaper. You have calls for charity and uh, fundraising among white Charlestonians trying to support what they saw as their counterparts from San Domingue who had just escaped this harrowing experience. They call them, frequently call them, you know, these distressed creatures from San Domingue that had arrived in Charleston essentially destitute. But you also have runaway slave advertisements of enslaved people who had been forced to go with their white enslavers from San Domingue to Charleston, who then run away once they arrive in the city. And these are people who are likely interacting with other members of Charleston's Black community. The ads mention that they're from Saint-Domingue, that they speak French, that they have experience there or elsewhere in the Caribbean or the French West Indies. Um, and these are people that are interacting with the, the native-born American enslaved population during the era of the Haitian Revolution. So well, you have all of these ways that enslaved people are learning about what is happening in Haiti at that time. That, yes, that, that, all of that's very true. The boogaboo of Haiti becomes embedded in South Carolina history, not just what you're talking about now, but that image of the black majority. And, of course, South Carolina becomes the most heavily African-American state in the Union, uh, 60 percent by 1860. But that fear of a new Haiti continues up through and past the American Civil War. So this incident that may have happened in the late 18th century continues to be an integral part of the discussion of slavery in South Carolina for almost another century. Yeah, the impact of Caribbean slave revolts, the impact of emancipation efforts in the Caribbean uh, are, are really influential in how North American planters, North American whites are thinking about the, the potential futures of, of slavery and the ways they are trying to ensure the continuation of the slave system by trying to eliminate those, those possibilities. And so, you know, throughout the, the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, as these things continue to happen uh, in the United States in various places, uh, and certainly in the Caribbean and in, in places that Charlestonians feel are a lot like their own city, those anxieties lead to, to further restrictions over slavery, to efforts to expand into the West and to colonize new territory, to have a sort of release valve for the for the slave system, and is, is really influential in, in how they're thinking about what kind of support they need from the federal government. A colleague of mine at Rice, his book talks about how one of the reasons that secession happened when it did is that they feared that after Abraham Lincoln was elected president, that he wouldn't use the strength of the federal government to come to their aid in the event of a massive slave insurrection. And that was, um, you know, that kind of became too much to bear by the 1860s and, and led directly well, to the Civil let's War. Ju let's just get back to the 1820s, 1822, Denmark Vesey. One of the things that's remarkable to me is that the, the impact of the Haitian Revolution, like you're saying, isn't confined to the 1790s. This is something that is influential in the thinking about slavery and about black freedom among Charlestonians for, for decades. Um, and not just the Haitian Revolution, but they continue to be engaged with the history and the development of Haiti as an, as an independent nation. Um, and so you have someone like Denmark Vesey, whose former enslaver, Joseph Vesey, was one of the 
the main merchants that had was interacting with San Domingue during its colonial era and bringing uh, goods from San Domingue to to Charleston. He was one of the people who was sort of leading some of these committees to raise funds for refugees from San Domingue that had arrived in Charleston. And so by the time he gains his freedom, Denmark Vesey had really a I think a deep level of, of understanding and experience of what had happened in San Domingue in Haiti and what the possibilities were in Charleston. And you and you see that in the records of the trials that that results after the failed insurrection or or the conspiracy that had been uh, been ferreted out. And when you look at those records, they're complicated. The power dynamics of these interrogations and these courtrooms and these trials are something that that can't be ignored. But one of the things I've always found important that one of my advisors had written about those those trials is that the enslaved people who were brought in there and mentioned the influence of Haiti, uh, they were telling telling stories that they thought would be believed. And so it was important to them and it was important to whites that, that this was part of that story. But I, I certainly don't think it was something that was, you know, was made up out of whole cloth. They were heavily influenced by developments in Haiti and elsewhere in the Atlantic world. And that, that influenced them to, you know, to, to plan the way they did to to overthrow the slave system. All right, let's move from the Atlantic world now specifically to the confines and the, the world of antebellum Charleston. You're a free person of color in, in Charleston. How are you going to support your family? How are you going to earn a living? What are you going to do? How are you going to relate with other folks within the free person of color world? You might be of a different complexion than somebody else. How are you? All of these dynamics, let's, let's begin to move into the world of the free persons of color in Charleston, 1800 to 1860. Certainly, as you're suggesting, it's, it's really complicated, right, that there's not one free black experience in Charleston, um, depending on you know whether you were born free or you were born enslaved and gained your freedom, depending on your racial ancestry, depending on the kinds of, of skills and relationships you have uh, could really could, could really determine the the course of your life and how successful you are and, and what opportunities were available to you. So among the most successful free people of color, skilled work, is really a central component of their lives. Work in in artisan trades like barbering and tailoring, carpentry, shoemaking, and and on down the line in other skilled trades that are really essential in in a thriving urban center are fundamental to the experience of Black freedom in Charleston and throughout the Americas. This is one of the really important parallels I see with cities in Spanish America and elsewhere, that free people of color are really dominating a lot of these skilled trades. Despite the fact that they make up a pretty small portion of the overall population, they end up making up a, a majority in many cases of the tailors and barbers and carpenters and other skilled trades. And and these roles are really important for them for a couple of reasons. They allow them to develop economic security. This is an effective way for them to earn a living for themselves, to support their families, to buy the freedom of loved ones if the opportunity presented itself. Um, But it's the the service-oriented nature of those kinds of jobs, like barbering, for example, really allows them to develop close ties with members of the white community in Charleston. And so whites in Charleston might think in the abstract about their uh, objections to the very nature of black freedom, but they didn't necessarily think in those ways to the person who was their barber or the person who was their tailor. And it was an opportunity for free people of color to prove that they were respectable members of the local community, uh, to prove that they were were hardworking, to prove that they shared in these values that they could sort of co-fabricate the meaning of with their white neighbors, um, things like, like sobriety, and respectability and and hard work. Um, And that became really very useful to free people of color. So one example that I draw out in in the book is is the example of a relatively well-known free person of color in Charleston named Jehu Jones. So he gains his freedom by working as a tailor. His enslaver was a tailor. He was trained as a tailor. He uses that trade to purchase his own freedom. Um, And then he uses it to develop these really close relationships with other prominent members of the community, both other prominent members of the free black community and of the, the white community. So among other free people of color, he uses those relationships to gain entry into the Brown Fellowship Society, one of the most important Uh, voluntary associations for free people of color at that time. Uh, And he uses his relationship to 
prominent white members of the community to petition the legislature when he needs exceptions to some of the restrictions on how and when free people of color could could cross state lines to try to get permission for his his wife and his daughter to return from out of state into South Carolina. Um, and so the ability to gain that sort of economic stability and to develop those reputations, their, develop their social profile and build those relationships with other members of the community were, were really very important for them. Well, Jones, yes, he began as a tailor, but his success of his son was as owning and managing one of the most elite hotels and restaurants in the city. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, you know, further cements his his status as a, uh, you know, one of the more respectable members of the community and gives him entree into all sorts of conversations and interactions with prominent members of the community that he might not otherwise have had. But then, it, you know, while he's running the hotel in 1831, his son is listed in the city directory as a tailor. So he was, uh, you know, was passing that skill on to the next generation that had served him so well and allowed him to move move into a different kind of work. Um, so the value and importance of skilled work for free people of color really cannot be understated. And and where did Jones go to church? He was a member of, of St. Philip's Episcopal Church. Again, one of the more elite sites of, of social interaction in addition to being a house of worship. Well, what is interesting is there was an Episcopal church founded for African Americans in Charleston prior to the Civil War, but most free persons of color tended to go to either St. Philip's or St. Michael's, the established Episcopal churches. Yeah, and in fact, when in some of these petitions that I mentioned where free people of color are requesting various exemptions to racial restrictions like on, on manumission or on occupation or movement, you have after the, the Denmark Vesey conspiracy in which that African-American church was so heavily implicated, you have free people of color emphasizing that they weren't members of that church and that they were members of one of the Episcopal churches or one of the Baptist churches uh, or one of the Methodist churches in town. We've already talked about some of the institutions that they used it for networking. You mentioned the Brown Fellowship Society. But before we get into that, as we have these artisans establishing successful businesses in Charleston, sometimes they're not solo operations. They're going to need assistance. They're going to need labor. They're going to end up purchasing slaves and employ slaves uh, in their businesses. Yeah, that, that is something that, that is, is definitely happening. And the labor market in a place like Charleston in an urban slave society, it, it very quickly becomes very complicated um, and almost always has uh, a combination of free labor and enslaved labor. Um, you have many enslaved people that are you know, they're enslaved, but they're living semi-autonomously. They have a high degree of sort of functional independence in terms of how they can hire out their time and you know how their, their work is uh, is dictated. Um, others that have that have far less that are being hired out by their enslaver uh, against their will. Um, and in a small number of cases, you do have free people of color who aren't just hiring enslaved laborers, but who are purchasing enslaved people themselves. And they do that for a variety of reasons, right? Some people because of the restrictions on manumission, they own enslaved people. And in the record, it just looks like a free people of color who owns enslaved people. But they're, they actually own family members. It's a spouse, it's a child who they're unable to legally manumit. Um, and so they hold them in slavery, um, but it, they are those enslaved people are living functionally as free people. But other times you have free people of color who purchase enslaved people you know, as a status symbol, right? That they want to demonstrate to wealthy whites in their neighborhood, people who they're trying to uh, develop relationships with, that they not only share the values of respectability and hard work, but they're invested in the, the slave system the same way that their, uh, their white counterparts are. And um, using that as a way to gain exception to some racial restrictions for themselves. And then there's, you know, purely the sort of economic motives um, that that motivated lots of people to invest in, in the slave system, but through through slave ownership, through slave trading, um, and, through things like that. And, um, and, and so John, the, we need to remind our listeners that whether a person was born slave or free depended upon the status of the mother. We've been talking mostly here about males who were free persons of color. Just because he was the father of a child, if the mother were not free, the child could not be free under South Carolina law. 
and I will say that I, I write more about free men of color in the book than I do about about free women of color. Um, and in part, there were uh, there were more opportunities for work for associations um, that that sort of carved out these avenues to freedom for enslaved men um, that weren't always available in the same way to enslaved women. You mentioned the Brown Fellowship Society. Let's talk about those organizations because that organization is fairly well known, but it was just one of a number of organizations that existed in Charleston prior to the Civil War for free persons of color. Yeah, this was one of the the chapters and, and the book that I, I really found the most interesting during my research is that, um, you know, so much of the focus, as you're saying, it, on the free Black experience in Charleston is focused on this pretty small group of people that were members of the Brown Fellowship Society. But there were several other voluntary associations in the city who that functioned in similar ways and that opened up these sorts of private associations to a much wider swath of the population than just the 50 or so people that were members of the Brown Fellowship Society. Society at any given time. Um, and so these voluntary associations um, in, in the early days function mainly as mutual aid societies. They support funeral costs and burial costs for families of members when they die. Um, they sometimes provide aid to people who apply to the society um, and, and ask for assistance. But more than that, these sorts of public associations they provide a way for free people of color to improve their social status, to shield themselves from racial discrimination in some ways by demonstrating this shared investment in the values of public association and in things like sobriety and, and hard work and respectability um, and, uh, and piety and, and, and other, other shared values with members of the white community. Um, you know, there were similar kind of parallel associations among white Charlestonians um, and free black Charlestonians founded these organizations as a means of demonstrating that those values weren't things that are exclusive to their white neighbors, that they were things that were important to the free black community as well. Um, they could offer access to, you know, to financial aid and to the, the status that being able to provide that kind of aid, uh, that kind of aid offered. Um, and they were opportunities to really demonstrate their, their fitness for freedom, to co-fabricate what it meant to be free and respectable in Charleston. So the Brown Fellowship Society is, is interesting in part because it has this, at least nominally, has this uh, racial complexion restriction, right? That this was for people uh, exclusively of brown complexion, people of mixed racial ancestry. And there were competing organizations that were for uh, people that were entirely of African ancestry, people with much darker complexion. Well, well let, let's mention, um, you've talked about the parallels with white organizations. I'm just going to mention very quickly the fact that the Friendly Marlist Society developed rules that parallel those of, the, of Charleston's German Friendly Society. So you've got at least three of these societies that are very limited, 50, I think, members in all three, and mm -hmm. it, they're based upon persons of light complexion. But the other one that you mentioned that was actually much larger, Charleston Society of Free Dark Men and Humane Brotherhood, their membership requirement said it was open only to respectable, free, dark men. And I think that's where you were headed. Yeah, that there was an effort among people of darker complexion uh, to, to make clear, I think, both to other members of the free black community uh, or the, the community of free people of color and to members of the white community that these ideas and these values were not something that was uh, restricted to people of mixed racial ancestry, that even people of darker complexion um, were, were capable of supporting these kinds of organizations, were invested in, in supporting these ideas and uh, trying to cultivate these ideas of respectability among their population. And that, I think, is something that has been a little bit overlooked in, in the literature about free people of color in Charleston was just how widespread these organizations were. You know, they, they were each only supporting about 50 members at a given time. But because there were three or four or five of them with only a little bit of overlap between membership, you know, you at times had up to 200 people who were members of, of a voluntary society. And in a pretty small population that was, you know, less than 2,000 for, for most of the period, we're talking about even fewer of those were adults and even 
and fewer of those were men. And so many, many people were, were members of these uh, or, or tried to be members of these voluntary societies. And, um, and, and another just that we haven't mentioned that also had a parallel in white society was the, the Cleosophic Debating Society among free people of color, which had a corollary in white society. And this was for debating the ideas of the day, the questions of politics and literature and religion. And sometimes you had interactions between the white debating society and the black debating society, where uh, a white member would come to the Cleosophic Debating Society meeting and would uh, you know, listen to and partake in these uh, discussions about you know, some really important and, and difficult questions. Including such things as which country presents the brightest prospects for future happiness and permanency, and this is for free persons of color, the U.S. or Great Britain, and the debate decided in favor of the United States. This was one of the moments in my research that you just wish you had more information, right? That, that That's the only note I have about that debate and not much about the, the actual content of the conversation. But I think it's really important that a group of free people of color in Charleston in the antebellum era made the point that they thought the United States presented the best opportunities for freedom. You know, this is, an op- this is a point at which uh, in the British Caribbean, emancipation is proceeding, right? They uh, slowly enslaved people are gaining their freedom. Talk about the abolition of slavery has has become apparent in the British Caribbean. um, And still they determined that the United States offered the best opportunity um, and the best future for black freedom. And I think that's important both because they, you know, they likely believed it, but also I think it sends an important message to other people in the community that they are invested in being Americans and they think of themselves as Americans um, and they uh, have this investment in continuing in the United States. Um, and I think at a time when um, there was a lot of anxiety about what was happening in the British Caribbean and the Caribbean more widely, as we talked about earlier. I think um, that was kind of an, an important line in the sand that, uh, that that group of free people of color drew. Well, there's one last chapter that I think we need to cover very quickly, and that is the use of the church and associations there. Who's selected as a godparent? Who is sponsoring a child for baptism was another means of networking within the the free person of color society of Yeah, this was a really fascinating document and series of documents to research, in in part because this was one of the few areas where I had very close comparisons between Cartagena and Charleston. I had baptismal records for roughly the same time period for both places. And I'll, I'll say that I'm, you know, I'm not a religious studies scholar. And so my interest in, in the church was, um, you know, was not theological, but was about how it functioned as a site of social interactions. Um, and you see that how this happens really clearly with baptisms, that a baptism and the selection and service as a baptismal sponsor um, or as a godparent in, in the case of, of Cartagena really functioned in an important way for free people of color. It was an opportunity for them to develop social ties with other members of the free black community. Um, and it was a way to boost their social profile, right? That um, this was a an interracial congregation. There were both white and black members of the church. And so it would have been apparent to everyone when someone served as as a baptismal sponsor. Um, and that was an honor, right? That there was a reason that, that that someone was chosen to serve as a baptismal sponsor. And it seems like this is something that free people of color were in, in many cases eager to do in order to demonstrate their sort of respectability within that, within that church community. And they did it within that community. It was rare for them to ask a, a white person to serve as a sponsor or a godparent. That's something that I sort of expected to find, that this is this great opportunity to develop a formal relationship with a prominent member of the white community. But it's not something that happens very often. I, I don't think I found many cases at all in my research where that's happening. Far more frequently, free people of color are choosing other free people of color to serve as baptismal sponsors. Enslaved people are choosing free people of color to serve as their baptismal sponsors. Um, And so sometimes these are um, what sociologists call vertical ties, where someone of a lower social or economic status is choosing someone of a higher status in order to build a link with someone effectively, you know, with with a higher profile in the community than them in order to raise their own profile. And other times these are what they call horizontal ties, where you have a group of elite 
free people of color that are all at a certain sort of a, at a certain level, and they're trying to build more ties among their families in order to to strengthen the bonds. John, we are running out of time. What would be your final comments, your conclusions you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off today? I guess I would say that by looking at the experiences of free people of color before the end of slavery, and especially looking at them from this international perspective, you can really see how free Black people staked claims to rights and privileges that were not typically afforded to African-descended people. And this is especially true in urban areas. Um, And these are rights and privileges that are made possible by the exigencies of urban life. And in doing so, they force their white neighbors and white authorities to recognize their humanity. They force them to recognize their capacity to survive and to thrive in freedom. And in so doing, they exposed cracks in the foundation of American racial hierarchies. By living in freedom and thriving in freedom and demonstrating their respectability and their shared values with whites, uh, they sort of undermined in very subtle ways the very logic of white supremacy in the United States and in the Americas more broadly. John Marks, the author of Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, Race, Status, and Identity in the Urban Americas. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. John Mark's book, Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, Race, Status, and Identity in the Urban Americas, is a fascinating and interesting contrast between the world of free persons of color in North America and those in South America. And of course, with the focus on Charleston, it gives us a glimpse of, as a previous historian described, a world in shadow. And John Marks has shined a light on that world, an interesting part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.